Well, I'm excited to begin a new series. It's always, well, it's actually a bit of a mixed feeling always when you start a new series. There's a, a lot of work that goes into um, beginning a new sermon series, but it's also fresh. It's exciting to see where we're going to go and how we're going to respond. Um, the title of this series is Together. And what we're going to be doing over the course of the next couple months, few months perhaps, is really looking at the one another's of the New Testament. There's a lot of them, as you'll see later in this message. And we're going to learn how to really truly be the community, the body of Christ that we are called to be. You know, as a boy, I was spellbound as I read a book of fiction by Daniel Defoe called Robinson Crusoe. Robinson was a young Englishman, if you're familiar with the story, you'll know this, who was shipwrecked. He was cast ashore alive, but alone, on an uninhabited island. It was off the coast of the New World, and he struggled fiercely with the isolation. I'm going to read to you a quote from that book, and it goes like this. I am cast upon a horrible, desolate island, void of all hope of recovery. I am singled out, separated, as, as it were, from all the world to be miserable. I am divided from mankind, a solitaire, one banished from human society. I have no soul to speak to or relieve me. That's a really good description of what it feels like to be utterly isolated and alone. See, humanness suffers when we're utterly alone for a long time. We're meant to be together. And that's the aim, really, of this introduction message, is to really look at the theology of this, to look really at the fabric of what God meant when he created us. In fact, just think of the word together for a moment. Some of you are already getting a little sleepy, seeing yawns. I'm getting into the depths of the word together. This really does not bode well for an exciting sermon. You know, it originally came from actually two words, but the root of it, a West Germanic word that meant to gather. Well, that's incredibly exciting, isn't it? Very insightful. But when you're speaking of people, together means to gather with each other, means to be together. And probably most of us did this as we just moved through Christmas, as we just moved through Thanksgiving. We're doing that, by the way, right now. We are gathering together. We are together even in this church service. Why are we here? We're here to worship our God. Isn't it odd? Have you ever really thought through that? We're going to church. Well, you know, get rid of that language. We're actually going to go to worship our God with other believers. That's how you ought to explain it. That's how you ought to say it to people. You're not going to a building. You're going to a group of called-out Christians. To worship our God. Today we're starting a new series. It's called Together. It's aiming to help us learn what it means to truly live life together in the church, the body of Christ. Now I'm going to make a statement that I would hope that you're going to go, "Mm, I'm not really sure about this. I'm I'm actually intentionally phrasing it the way that you're about to hear it to Be a bit provocative to draw you in to really have to deliberate whether it's true or not. Here's the statement. There is no other place to experience true community than in the church. 
Now I'm going to say it again because it's so simple of a statement. You might not even be getting how exclusive this is. To all the other communities on the globe, there is no other place to experience true community than in the church. Now I'm pretty sure some of you, if you're listening closely, you're kind of revolting inside of your mind at that statement. Because you might be saying things like this, I've never found it so difficult to make friends than in the church. I hear this frequently. You might be thinking, I've never been hurt so often than I have by people at my church. Some undoubtedly are thinking, wait a minute, my best friends are not even Christians, and my best times are those spent with unbelievers. So how can you say, Tim, that there is no other place to experience true community than in the church? What we're going to discover in this series is that soul-satisfying community. Did you hear how I'm saying that? Soul-satisfying community is both broader and deeper than your teammates, your best friends, your affinity groups, and it is only possible to experience it in the church. Now, I'm sure there's some that still do not fully agree with that, and that's all right. The aim of this message, this introduction, is to help you be convinced and persuaded of that. So give me about another 32 minutes, and I think hopefully we're going to make some headway on that. To begin our quest to understand what it means to really live life together in the church, let's begin of all places at the very beginning in the book of Genesis. So can you get your Bibles? We're going to go all the way back. Listen, if you don't like trying to find the books of the Bible while the preacher's telling you to open it up, this one's easy. Just go all the way to the left. We're in chapter two of the very first book of the Bible. Everybody can find this one. We're going to get to verse 18, one that I think probably the majority of us are so actually so familiar with that you don't even need to look at your Bible, but I'm going to ask you to look at your Bible because I'm going to actually tease out a little bit of the verbiage. Genesis chapter 2, 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. It hardly needs mentioning that up until now in this entire creation account, everything has been good. You've heard that from preachers over and over. You've seen it in your own studies. But now for the very first time in all of the Bible, for the first time ever out of God's lips, something is not good. And that ought to be kind of like an an off-key note on the keyboard. Not that our keyboardist ever does that. He's really good. All of them are. But this ought to be like a, a clanging symbol because it's so, it's so odd to hear God say that something is not good. It is not good that the man should be alone. Now somebody could read this, and I'm sure many have, and conclude that God made Adam and then realized something was not quite right. So he corrected it. He made a woman. I hope you would agree with me that this was not an admittance of a divine oversight. It was rather a declaration of a very intentional way that he created human beings. Some are going to think, well, maybe while creating Adam, I don't know, this is actually one of my favorite songs growing up, maybe God was singing the lyrics to Three Dog Nights, smash hit one. Don't you remember how that goes? Wow, are you all young people? 
one is the loneliest number that you'll ever do. Do I need to sing this for you? No, I will not do that. I mean, God was not humming the lyrics of that and realized, wait a minute, one is not good. i got to create another one. He knew this. Not only, now, this is actually very, where, very much where we go a little bit theological. Are you ready? you got to get this. This is now where maybe some of you aren't accustomed to thinking, but this is actually foundational. This is actually fun. God not only knew that it's not good that man should be alone because he's got perfect knowledge. We call it omniscience, all knowledge. It's because he has perfect experience. You ever thought of it like that? See, when he was about to create Adam on the sixth day, God said, let us, look at the pronouns, make man in our image after our likeness. You've probably noticed them before, but you've got to see those pronouns, us, our, twice. God is a relational being. This is the triune God speaking. The Father, the Son, and the Spirit. And God has eternally, by the way, you know, unlike those Jehovah's Witnesses that are going to pop on your door, knock on that door, and open up and tell you what they believe, which they believe that Jesus Christ was created. That is not biblical. You need to be able to know that. God has eternally existed as the Father, the Son, and the Spirit. He is one God, three persons. They all have the same essence of deity. The, the Father, the Son, the Spirit. They've always enjoyed eternally a relationship with one another. By the way, this is why John 1.1 is so amazing. Can you hold your finger in Genesis 2? This is important enough to take a little road trip in the scriptures. John chapter 1. John writes, in the beginning was the word. That's a title for Jesus. So in the beginning was Jesus. And the word was with God and the word was God. He was with, he was in the beginning with God. Now let me take you to verse 1. In the beginning was a word and the word was with God. Now this is really quite seemingly underwhelming. The word with in the Greek means facing. It means face to face. I'll illustrate it this way. Men, if you're going to take a lady out on a date... Let me tell you what I've learned from my own experiences of failing. If you're going to go to a place that has TVs playing sports, sit with your back to the television, or you're doomed. Do you understand me? You are going to be doomed. Because if you sit there the entire meal that's supposed to be romantic, and you're looking at the TV, and she knows you're looking at the TV, and you're not face-to-face, that is not relational. That is relationally empty. You do not want a date like that. So all of eternity, Jesus was with the Father face-to-face. Remember what I said uh, from the cross? My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That was the first time ever in eternity that the Father and the Son were not in perfect relationship of face-to-face time. Father turned away. Why? Because his son was bearing the sins of all who would believe. See, God is a relational being, and he has made us in his image. You and I are still in God's image. By the way, if you're here right now, and you can admit, I'm, I'm not a Christian, I've not put my faith in Jesus, guess what? You're still in the image of God. 
You don't need to become a Christian to be made in the image of God. You're already made in the image of God. We are image bearers. And one of the ways that we bear the image of God is that we are irresistibly relational beings. And our relational God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. But by the way, just flip that around. It's a little easier sometimes to do that. You can say it another way. It is a very bad thing for a man to be alone. And here it's a man or a woman. It doesn't matter. It's not gender-based. Now, here's what too many people do, I think, wrongly with this. Is they immediately tie this verse only and directly to marriage. Well, certainly it's in the context, because here comes the woman, who will later be renamed Eve, the mother of all living. But it's in the context. But you can't exclusively tie this to, well, the solution then is always and only marriage. That's not really true. The relationship of other people is the solution. In a broader sense, it's people. You know, even in a marriage, a couple can feel lonely. You know how many people come into my office and they just utterly are lonely? Not in the first few months, by, by the way. You're never really lonely, almost never, in the first few months of marriage. We have this thing. It's a built-in cocoon called a honeymoon bubble. And when you first get married, everything is harps and angels and cherubs and everything is colorful and rainbows and that person could do no wrong. But sometimes that doesn't last even beyond the wedding night. But that bubble is going to pop. You know what I do in pre-marriage counseling? I try to pop that bubble before the wedding. I do. Because that's not real marriage when that bubble's in, in place. So yeah, during the first few, time, first few uh, months, perhaps, of, of the early romance, you feel like you're the only one that you need in the entire universe. Everybody else is just optional. Day after day, week after week, it's just the two of us, and I'm all right with that. That's what you think when you're in the bubble. But it's going to prove, eventually, to your dismay, not fully satisfying to shut out all other relationships for just each other. You are designed, as I am, by our Creator to live in community, to come together with others in deeper, much more meaningful ways. There is, in God's design of human beings, there's a need for us to live life with people, to live together. By the way, there are occasional people, is anybody's face coming to mind as I'm about to say this, who utterly disdain other people? They really prefer their own company at all times. But listen, those people, they're what you might want to call an aberration. They're the abnormal. They're not the norm of God's intentional design. But you find people that are lonely often in the elderly. It's in the twilight of their lives that they experience loneliness, sometimes for the very first time. It's a miserable experience. Did you know that the U.S. Census Bureau says that 28% of those people, 65 and older, struggle with loneliness? I am so thankful to those in our church who regularly visit the elderly to be with them. But I'm going to shock you, possibly. You might not know this, but it might surprise you. 46% of our country, those 40, let me rephrase that, 46% in our country of people 16 to 24 years old 
struggle with intense loneliness. 46%. You can have 800 Facebook friends, 1,000 Twitter followers. You can live under the the illusion that you are deeply in meaningful community. And by the way, you're not. It's meant to be face-to-face. It's meant to be organic. Not meant to have a bunch of followers that you're saying is your friend base. And society knows this, by the way, there are countless studies on loneliness and just as many efforts to help people find true community. How about Xbox? You like Xbox? Well, they've got Xbox community. You know how many people subscribe? 54 million. And there's a little buzz tagline for Xbox community. Here we all play together. See, the world knows that we're built. We operate best when we're with other people. Social community app Meetup, 24 million members. That was back in 2016, likely has grown. Did you know that there is a Rent-A-Friend website? Now you might laugh at this, but there's 621,000 friends worldwide that are rentable. And they charge 10 to $30 an hour. Here's an example from one that rented. It was a grandmother that came in, and the children were in school, and her grandson and his wife are working. She had all day to do whatever she wanted, so she rented a friend. Let's go out to the movies with me, and we'll go and have tea afterwards. That's one example of it. 621,000 people that you can rent. 168 million people on Facebook, 117 million on Instagram. Listen, there's a universal desire to not be alone in life. One of my favorite movies I have ever seen in my life, Castaway, Tom Hanks. Plays a character marooned on a South Seas island for four years. Alone the entire time, the music, the movie rather, does an excellent job portraying the psychological need for togetherness. You've got Hanks befriending a volleyball that he names Wilson and interacting with it as if it's another human being. This is an incredibly powerful movie. So what is the answer to the deep loneliness that so many people struggle with? How can the world find true community and togetherness? I'm going to give to you the most definitive statement Likely in this entire series. But I really need you to believe it. Or at the very least, I need you to consider it very, very deeply. You ready? The church is the only community where people who are joined with God can be together with each other. That's a little different than the earlier statement I made, so I'm going to read it again. The church is the only community where people who are joined with God can be together with each other. Now, I'm concerned that what you just heard is so underwhelming that you dismissed it out of hand. It's actually a very massively weighty statement, and it's one that's exceedingly repugnant to the world's ears. Only in the church, what I'm saying, the body of Christ 
Can a person be together with both God and at the same time his people? It's only in the church. Now, you might be hearing, are you telling me, Tim, that it's only when I come to Cornerstone at 5.30 on Saturday or 10 o'clock on Sunday morning that I can be with God and other people? Is that what you're saying? I am not saying that. The church is not right here only. The church is when the people of God gather And it's only when the people of God gather who are together with God that you can experience true community that God created. He designed us to experience it. And if you're not in the called out people of God, the community, what we call the body of Christ, together with God having put your faith in him, then you will not be able to experience true community. It's at the intersection called the church that we are designed to live life. It's only in the church that someone can experience true community and togetherness. Now, somebody might be thinking right now, wait a minute, my graduating class of 2019 that's coming up in a few months, man, we are really a small but tight-knit community. Or you might be thinking the Super Bowl 52 winning Eagles or a support group of survivors from abuse, listen, none of them, as powerful as they are experientially, none of them can compare with the deeply soul-satisfying power that is found in the body of Christ. Now, if you cannot identify with that, it's likely that many of you cannot, it's, then something has gone wrong. Did you hear that? If you cannot experientially identify with my statement that it's only in the church that you can experience true community, something's gone wrong. What's gone wrong is either in you or it's in our church or most likely both. And there's a way for us to become that community where relationship with God and with each other meets. It's a place where we can be together. And I'm going to tell you how? But before I do, I want you to reflect on a few questions with utmost seriousness. Will you, will you do that with me? I really mean that. I mean, we all, let, let's just be honest. I am just like you. When I'm not preaching and I'm in the pew, I can be just like you. We all tend to be like, like little babies who automatically open their mouths when the parent brings the spoon of baby food clear, close. We just open it up automatically. It's like you strap in on that dinosaur ride at the animal kingdom, and you just go where the ride takes you. You don't really do anything. You just sit there. That's a very dangerous thing to do when somebody's preaching, and I'm going to illustrate why you should not ever do that when I'm preaching or anybody is preaching. Don't just go automatic and open up the mouth of your mind and swallow everything that we tell you. You should not do that. I'll I'll illustrate it. I am terribly nearsighted, truth. I have contacts. My lenses on my glasses, Coke bottle, they're very, very thick. My right eye, worse than my left. When I was five years old, my mom took me and two of my older brothers, I have three older brothers, she took us to Kmart, which was before Walmart. That was the big, mega box store. It was huge, especially to a little kid like I was. And my mom walked us in there and said to the three of us, I'll see you later. She took off to shop, and we took off to play. We took off on our own. And before long, I'm five, my brothers are eight and ten, 
And before long, they're fast walking. They're speed walking to try to lose me. And I'm trying to catch up, and I'm already starting to fear that I'm going to get lost in this huge box store forever. Nobody's ever going to find me until I'm just a cadaver in the corner. So I'm already crying. I've got tears in my eyes. Now they're running, turning every which way to aisles, everywhere they could to to lose me. Now I want to tell you that like they do today, Kmart then had those steel hangers. Right, Those long metal rods that you hang the merchandise on. And they attach to a sort of pegboard, slotted pegboard. And I'm running, and I've got tears in my eyes, and I try to go around a corner, and I tripped, and I fell face face first into the end of a display stand with those steel hangers. And the one hanger went about three inches into my eye, just to the right of that eye. Just missed my eyeball, but I'm stuck to it, screaming in pain and terror until somebody could come and call the ambulance and the EMTs to be able to help. Now, here's my point. That story was only true to the point that we went to Kmart. (laughs) None of the rest of that happened. But some of you are gasping. I think I saw one person in the back left ready to vomit. You can't believe everything that a preacher tells you without getting your mind around it. Now, I'm afraid that some of you will never believe anything I tell you again. I almost didn't share that illustration because of that. But you have to be careful. You have to discern everything that anybody says. Because listen, if you're not careful, I could preach all kinds of distorted messages. And you might never realize it until I've led you onto a path that can erode your faith. You have to guard against that. This is the way you guard the Word of God. You hold it up. So I'm going to ask you some of those reflective questions that I a moment ago asked you to seriously ponder. I want you to capture your mind. I want you to think seriously. Don't just slip into auto drive. Here comes the spoon of the baby food. Just open your mind, but do it carefully. Have you ever considered that every sin that we could possibly commit is a breakdown in relationship, either with God or other people? Every sin is relationally driven. There is no exception to this. Idolatry is a direct act against God. Stealing is against a person. Coveting is a demand for what someone else possesses. It's a demand of God. I'm not happy with what I have in life, therefore I demand something more. Lying is to deceive somebody else. I can run right down every sin that you could ever come up with. It's either an attack against God relationally or it's an attack against somebody else. Even those sins that you think are so private that nobody ever knows anything about it, it is nothing but at the most central against God. Sin has permeated every relationship, but we are meant and we are designed to experience togetherness. Sin breaks that down. 
But let me go on. Has it ever occurred to you that the Ten Commandments are entirely showing us how to be together with God and God's people? The first four are about how you love and are together with God. And the second group of six is how you can love and be together with people. All of the commandments are bent towards helping us live together in community. But perhaps the most private, personal question is this one. Are you experiencing Christian community in deep and meaningful ways? Now, can you consider that for a moment? Let me clarify it. I'm going to help a little bit. I think you'll see why I'm doing that. It's necessary. I'm not asking if you call Cornerstone Church your home church and attend faithfully each week. That's not experiencing true Christian community. I'm not even asking if you have people in the church that you call friends. I'm not asking if your life were to hit hard times, would there be people that you can count on? And I'm certainly not asking if you have people at work that you talk sports with or a book club that you belong to or some people that you play ball with on your lunch break. I'm not even only asking if you have a life group that you attend regularly. You could be in a life group and not experiencing true Christian community. Are you experiencing what can be found only at the intersection of God and others called the church? It's the only place where God and others meet for community. It would be disastrous if you're right now defining church as this worship service that you're in right now. Certainly that is part of it, but church is much more than that. We are those Christians, we are those whom God has called out of the world and put into covenantally, contractually, into the body of Christ. And we are joined together by God into one family. So how is it possible for you to experience what it is that we're designed for? How do you experience true community in the church? Now I'm going to give you the answer to that. And then we're going to take a few months to really deeply look at this. And I am very excited about it. Do you know that there's 105 times in the New Testament alone, found in 95 verses, that you will see the phrase, one another? And they cover the gamut of how we can live together in the church by the grace of God. I'll give you three examples. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. That was twice in one verse. Here's another one. Be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another as God in Christ forgave you. That's twice in one verse. Here's another. But exhort one another every day as long as it is called today that none of you may be hardened by the deceitfulness of of sin. What would it be like if you lived in a community that we cared so deeply about each other that the moment your heart begins to harden because something calamitous has happened in your life and you're blaming God for it, here comes people around you that will be with this and endure it with you through the pain and the grief of what you're going through. Who will pray for you and say, you know what, we're not going to give up on you. We're not going to let your faith fail. We're going to walk through this until we get out of this. Not until I'm uncomfortable, until we get out of this. 
That's true redemptive community that's only found in the church. Yes, you can have a best friend that will never leave you, but that best friend, unless they are a Christian, cannot join with you and with God at the same time. There's no way to mediate the strength of God to other people. That's what it means to live the one another's. You're mediating, you're a bridge builder between God bringing his strength to other people, his endurance, his mercy, his patience, his love. It's what it means to live the one another's of the New Testament. Because it is not good for us to be alone. It's not good for us to be without each other. We are designed to live life together. But I know together is not possible without God and without our intentional obedience. Now, I'm going to tell you something, and I'm not really overstating, and I'm going to be done in one minute. I'm not overstating this. I know sometimes pastors can be given to exaggerative statements, and that's not at all what I'm about to do. We must not fail in learning how to live these one another's. And I'm going to be very honest. I think for most of us at Cornerstone Church, we do not even understand how to do this. Most of us. And we must not fail. For when Jesus said, you love one another just as I have loved you, all people, everybody in this community, everybody in Easton, everybody in Peaburg, all people will know that you are my disciples. If we cannot even live one another, why would the world take notice? What is there that would alert them to something different? What would attract them? What would show them the power of God? What would beam glory to Jesus if we fail in loving one another and coming to one another? What you're going to hear, I'm going to warn you right now, week after week, it's going to be an incredibly hard-hitting sermon, one after another, and it's going to aim at me as well. Because we have got to learn how to live out the one another's if we're going to be the community of God that we're meant to be. Amen? Welcome to our new series called Together. I hope you come along on this journey. I think it's going to have wonderful dividends for us. Let's pray.